Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. So welcome to this week's episode of the Nature Photographer podcast. We are bringing to you Stephen David Johnson, who just released a handbook for Nampa about vernal pools. So we will get into that exciting project and those beautiful photographs. And then we also have myself. I'm here from from Nampa. I'm Dawn Wilson. And we have Mark Raycroft and Ron Hayes from Wild and Exposed. So again, as always, we have a, a mix. I'm down here in Louisiana and Steven's down in Virginia. Ron's up in Wyoming and Mark is up in his home up in Canada. So we're a, a wide variety of locations again. So welcome, Steven. We're pretty Thank excited you. about having you here. Your, your project is absolutely stunning. I'm always amazed, especially I, I've mentioned to you before about being down here in Louisiana. And I look at these swampy puddles that are all, all over the place here and I'm now noticing new things that I never really noticed before. So, so you made an impact on me already. That's great. So, Stephen, what um, what is your background? Just let everybody know where you came from, how you came to be involved in this project, and and photography in particular. Yeah. So my my undergraduate background is in studio art with a concentration in photography, which at the beginning of that was traditional photography. By the very end of my college experience, Photoshop started to exist. So I started to dabble with uh, things digital, kind of before digital cameras came into being. And then I actually studied digital media in grad school. Uh, After that, I went on to do some professional work in digital media, started teaching, got back into photography in a really big way when digital SLRs first came on the scene. And I had always had this love for the natural world and that's the direction my photography started to take. That's an interesting background. Yeah, I mean, we usually have people who have been biologists or in the field that way, but the vernal pool stuff is so specific and and, and to me intensely intense biology behind. I mean, it's one of the, I can't wait to dive into them, wink with you and, 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 and and see where that came from, but to come from the professional photography, digital creative side and not the animal nature side is a different spin for us. That's cool. Cool to hear. And, and, and yeah, absolutely. So you've been involved with Nampa for how long now? Oh, I probably couldn't give you an exact year amount maybe Don would know I'm guessing uh somewhere in the uh eight to ten year range oh significant absolutely good chunk of the group's group's history yeah so I I I don't want to be too quick out of the starting gate here I mean if there's something else we should dive into but as far as this project with the vernal pools I do I mean I okay I'm right, sorry. I'll, 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 I do have a question back. before we get started with that because Steve. I know, right. I know that's gonna. You know, Mark's question is gonna take us into several different directions. And Deep water, shallow water. So, are you kind of a macro specialist? That's where a lot of my work is, and uh, really, in the last year, I've been doing a lot of ultra macro 
work too. Uh, but I, you know, I teach photography at the university mm-hmm. level. That's kind of my, my day job. So I'm doing everything with you know, telephoto lenses, a little bit of video work, wide angle stuff. Uh, but in my personal work, yeah, a lot of it is macro work. And when you say ultra macro, just for the audience, what differentiates macro from ultra macro? Yeah, so traditional macro is known as one-to-one. So if you think of uh, 35 millimeter film as as the standard, whatever the size of your subject is, that's the size that's going to show up on the 35 millimeter film area, which now, of course, is translated to digital. When you get into the ultra macro realm, then you're getting bigger than that on your sensor. So the lens I'm using right now is a Laowa 25 millimeter ultra macro, which goes from about 2.5 times to five times. So significantly more magnification than traditional one-to-one. Excellent. So, yeah, then I mean, the school stuff's super interesting too, especially with the Nampa spin, and we could get into that, but I, I just want to take a moment and suggest that people, well, either go after the podcast, thewildandexposed.com and to the show notes and click on Stephen's Instagram page or pause this for just a second and go there and look for ultra macro, check out those jumping spiders. I mean, that, the eye, the detail, I love that. I mean, how, how amazing are these little tiny, I mean, we all, I, anybody who's into nature has been entertained by jumping spiders. I, I assume at some point in the house or wherever, not my house, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) outdoors, but they're just so tiny and, and, and they're so fun to watch move around, but to magnify them to the extent that you have really highlights just how intricate and, and the eyes reflective level and, and the hair or bristles on them, just the color coloration. It's, it's amazing to see. That's gotta be fun and, and a challenge because they're jumping spiders. Absolutely. Right. That was one of my COVID projects. Um, You know, I think so many of us have had to pivot a little bit and uh, jumping spiders, as you said, live in our houses. I actually saw one today in the the kitchen. Uh, (laughs) Although the kind of household that embraces that. So, uh, yeah. Uh, But, yeah, they found so many species of jumping spiders just in our backyard over the course of last spring and through the summer and just getting to know more about the biodiversity 20 feet from my house was really exciting it's incredible Hmm. right when you look at those finer details it's it's amazing what you can find one of the courses i took in university in university i almost finished um, a minor in entomology but it was to collect 500 different insect species over the winter and as an undergrad when we start this it's like yeah you're, you're joking right how will you expect us to find 500 insect species during the winter they're not flying around but it was an amazing amazingly fun project they're out there you know they're mm. dormant in wood wood pile in a, in a rotting tree and just what was discovered so many incredible species. I mean, one was a, a, a wasp-like creature that I found with raptorial back legs. Very different. You know, like a praying mantid has on the front, 
This is a wasp that had those on the back. But it, there's so much out there in the jumping spiders world. Anyway, I can run on this. I get really excited about the diversity of insects because this planet, I mean, you think about it, we don't notice those small things unless we focus on them Absolutely. and take the time or they land on our nose, right? So when you take the time to do what you've described, it, it can be truly amazing to see that biodiversity everywhere. And, you know, I think for so many of us, a lot of these projects start off with curiosity. We're just, we notice something and we start to follow it up. And there's so much that you can learn from direct observation. That's, that's something I try to encourage my students about, too. You know, it's, it's great to learn from experts, and I encourage that. But, you know, spend some time just going out in your backyard, watching carefully, and you'll start to notice things. You'll get your eyes on. And that's, I think, a really empowering thing. Yeah. Well, we were talking, I mentioned I was down here in Louisiana. It's, you know, we were talking about spiders. When I walk my dog at night with the headlamp, you know, I'm even catching the eyes of the spiders. And the first time that happened, we were like, what is all these sparkling things out in the grass? So, like you said, it's just kind of paying attention to what's around you. And we started seeing, and then the more that I've, been out then you can start to see you know the brighter ones or the larger spots or larger spiders and you can i don't know it's been really interesting it's but it, it does it's just it's just kind of paying attention to what you have at home and i think covid's really given us that opportunity it's forced us to to really pay attention to them absolutely you can see those eyes at like 10 feet 10 or 12 feet i, I walk at night sometimes and i'll have the led just something about maybe the led yeah. um spectrum just it's like you know with mammals that have uh, the reflective layer in their eyes there's a lot of mammalian species that have a second layer it's called a tapetum lucidum that the light reflects through a second time in the eyes that allows them to see at night by having that extra receptive layer and that's what reflects in the headlights of cars for deer raccoons coyotes all that these spiders if you can see that they just reflect like little tiny bright lights as you're walking i know we're getting off subject but it's, it's fun <laughs> stuff yeah. So the jumping yeah, spiders, yeah. not not to stick with it too long, but was uh, it easy, or did they just jump all the time, and you and you had to try so many times to get them, that those ultra macro close ups? Yeah. Well, in some ways, it felt easy in comparison because I bought this ultra macro setup for my vernal pools work, so that I could photograph some of the very smallest creatures underwater. So I was trying to photograph things like you know, copepods that were, you know, two or three millimeters and are flying in a cloud underwater in the dark and just, you know, getting one image of those in focus out of a hundred was a challenge. Right. So by the time I was seeing jumping spiders on a flower, I thought, okay, this is all right. This is not too bad. <laughs> And that was so that was my college project. We had to go out and he had to collect diatoms and identify it. And he had it broken down. A hundred species was an A, and ninety species was a B. So that's how we broke it down. But we had to identify several different species, key them out. And I think that when you get bored with terrestrial wildlife, and we're going to get into this with your project, that's why I was so interested in it. When you get bored with terrestrial wildlife, if that ever happens, Mark's shaking his head, and I agree, probably not going to happen. <laughs> but there's so much life in the water, and it doesn't matter where you're at. And 
you know, there's different ways, obviously, to observe it. But I'm I'm anxious to hear about your project and kind of what brought that on. So I guess we can get back to Mark's question <laughs> earlier. Well, yeah, I was just going to dive into what maybe you can explain to the audience what these pools are, how they form, and just a bit of the biology behind it and why there's such an incredible little micro ecosystem what goes on in there what what drew your attention to them and, and i mean there's so many so many places we can go i'll just start with that yeah so vernal pools are basically temporary ponds so there's a part of the year where they usually go dry and the important thing about that is the going dry part makes them fish free and because there are no fish there are species that can complete parts of their life cycle in these ponds without having to worry about being gobbled by fish. So some of those species would include things like salamanders and certain frog species. Uh, they're invertebrates also. So oftentimes these are in forested landscapes, certainly in Appalachia, where I'm kind of on the edge of, of Appalachia here in, in Virginia. Those would be really common types of landscapes. How did I get interested in this? So I moved to Virginia in 2005 to take a job at a university here teaching photography. Uh, and at that point I was already documenting the natural world. And when I moved here, I thought the best way I can explain to folks back home, which was Western New York, where I landed, where what this new place was about was to create a blog and show them everyday life here. So some of that was about my family, but a lot of it was about the natural world. So we live next to the Shenandoah River. I would photograph that a lot. I started going off on forest hikes and I started to get interested in some of the conservation organizations that were around here. And it was through some of those connections with different nonprofits, conservation organizations, that I was exposed to some field trips that involved vernal pools. Oh, I should back up and say, you know, one of the big biodiversity stories in central and southern Appalachia is salamanders. So if you move down here and you care about biodiversity, uh, you better be interested in salamanders because that's where it's at. I mean, we have more than 50 species of salamanders just in Virginia. So it's an amazing place to be. And that certainly became one of my main subjects. But when I was introduced to vernal pools, I realized, oh, if I want to tell the story about salamander biodiversity, I can't just tell the story from the top side. I need to think about where a lot of these salamanders are breeding and spending part of their life cycle. And that was in these little pools. So that's kind of how the project got started. I love salamanders. Excellent. I know they don't have... I know they don't have antlers, and, <laughs> which is something that I cover a lot with, with my profession, but I love salamanders and they are incredible. The, the life cycle yeah. they have and the lifespan. I mean, mm -hmm. sit down and think about how long these amphibians live. My brother caught a yellow spotted salamander that was maybe, well, it was pretty well full grown, maybe four inches long. And when he was a kid and put it in a terrarium in the house. Now, I know that's not necessarily kosher everywhere, but he was a little a little boy. This was his pet back in the day. It was a few years ago now. It was okay. 
<laughs> that salamander stayed there and became super social. You'd walk up to the terrarium, you'd come out. It lived uh, for close to 30 years there. Wow. I have German shepherds that when we get to 14 years, my last German shepherd was 14. We were grateful he was able to, a family member, live that long, right? Mm -hmm. But this little salamander had twice the lifespan. How is, that's amazing. It is. You, so, I mean, and there's so many different colorations and species, as you point out. So it's something, you know, people who may not know a lot about them, I encourage them to, you know, look them up. They're, they're, some, they're amazing. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the longevity. Uh, that's actually something that matters to me a lot. It means I mean, these are creatures that often have serious life experience. They may have gone to the same pool, you know, year after year for decades. And there's something you have to respect about, about that, that, that knowledge that they require, the ability to, to stay alive in, in these forests with lots of predators out there for for so many years and there are places too I, I, i'm so much this excites me I, I, you guys got to tell me to stop but there <laughs> they, they, there are places i think i saw in waterton national park if i remember correctly in southern alberta when i was there once they had um little vertical tarps along the side of the roads with signs saying salamander migration and they were actually trying to prevent the salamanders from crossing the road at that peak of migration to their vernal pools because they'd be run over right I assume that was what was happening. I think I've seen similar things in Virginia and West Virginia too, don't they? Yeah, they, I mean, that's absolutely a thing. And there are some communities that have done a really good job. They have uh, sort of crossing guards that come out at a certain time of year and, and help slow down traffic and, and help these salamanders cross. I have to say, I feel kind of fortunate where I am that I've never actually witnessed that, these sort of salamander road crossings because where i'm photographing is usually fairly deep in the forest so as much as i appreciate that people are doing that mm -hmm. i think it would stress me out incredibly <laughs> to to be yeah. by the side of the road and yeah. watch hundreds of salamanders trying to dodge traffic yeah it's the frogger game in real life right yeah um but yeah i didn't see any at the time so to the vernal pools then what about dimensions and size? Can they be a few feet across and a foot or two deep, or do they need to be more expansive than that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what you described for, is accurate for some of the very smallest pools. And some of my photography that's, that's in this book are from pools where I can stretch my arms across and reach the other side. So, yeah, sometimes they're basically glorified puddles. Other times they're many acres. So there's, there's quite a range. And you know, the topography, hydrology can range quite a bit too. So there are some pools that I've gone to that are formed from seeps at, at the base of a slope. There are others that are sinkhole ponds. Uh, there are other pools that I've gone to that aren't technically true vernal pools. They're actually wildlife water holes that were constructed, but functionally act like vernal pools because they're fish free. So tell us a little bit, Stephen, you mentioned that vernal pools are seasonal. So what season do you typically see these? How long do they last? Are there some that, that do last all year round if they have a water supply? 
Yeah, so, I mean, vernal, of course, means spring, so that's kind of the, the season we typically associate with vernal pools. So a lot of the species, like the spotted salamanders you mentioned, Jefferson salamanders, tiger salamanders, are, are kind of late winter to spring species. So they're coming with some of the spring rains, with the snow melts, but there are other species at other times of the year. There's a species that we have here, the marbled salamander, that typically is a fall breeder. So that's a little bit different than you might typically think. And some of the species I mentioned, like tiger salamanders, I've, I've seen them in the snow. I've, I've seen photographs from other folks of salamanders swimming under coatings of ice. So there are amphibians that are out there when it's pretty cold. Even in, you know, into the summer, I'm watching the life cycle continue because breeding season for a lot of these salamanders might be in February, March, maybe even into April, depending on you know, how far north you are. But then, of course, those eggs hatch and you can watch the, the larva start to grow and that can extend through the summer and into the fall. So there's very few times of the year when I couldn't go out and maybe find some sort of amphibian action related to a pool. So we could stay with the biology all podcasts and I'd be fine with that. But <laughs> but I, I know I know you're so a professor of photography and and this is about photography. So as to, if you don't mind describing what you use for equipment to well, you've mentioned the the, the lenses, but to actually mm -hmm. immerse yourself in the water and I mean, are you laying beside these pools? Are the larger pools? Are you out there in a wetsuit? How do you manage that? And and what equipment are you collecting these wonderful pictures with? Yeah. Um, so first, a little bit about technique, I guess. So if I can, especially with the smaller pools, I'll stay on the edge and I'll kind of stretch myself prone along the edge of the pool and put my camera in as far as I can. But that doesn't always work. Some of the larger pools, I need to get in. And in that case, I'm usually using chest waders. Uh, depending on the time of year, it can get pretty cold doing that. This season, I'm actually going to try out some, uh, they're kind of duck decoy gloves that go up to your shoulders so I can keep my arms a little bit warmer because mm. often my limiting factor when I'm photographing in December or January is just my fingers freezing. And eventually when I can't push the buttons anymore, I think I'm done for the night. So as far as equipment goes, I started off doing this work uh, with some DSLR equipment. I had a Canon camera in an Icolite underwater housing. But in the last few years, I've switched over to mirrorless and I'm using some Sony cameras. So I have a full frame Sony A7R III and I also have a crop frame Sony A6500. In terms of lenses, yeah, I mentioned the ultra macro lens from Laowa, which probably bears a little bit further discussion because when you're putting together an underwater system, you have to be really precise with what are called the ports. So for those of you who aren't familiar with underwater photography, when you have an underwater housing, you have to have a special port that goes on front of each individual lens so that it keeps the lens from getting waterlogged. Uh, however, there was no port 
for this lens, at least none that was advertised. So some of this project was doing some research. I uh, did a lot of measuring. I messaged manufacturers to, to make sure that this lens that I wanted to try could potentially actually work. And it did. So uh, one thing I would mention, though, is the Laowa lens is a strictly manual lens. Yeah, it's completely manual focus. Uh, so basically, you just have a fixed focus, and then you rock your camera back and forth to get the species into focus, you know, with a tiny, tiny depth of field that's, you know, a fraction of a millimeter sometimes. So it's a really challenging lens to use, especially underwater in the dark. That's what I was going to say is a lot of these, sorry, a lot of these macro lenses or macro shots like you've been doing, um, a lot of people focus stack. So they'll take a couple hundred images to get the full depth of field of the subject. That presents kind of an issue when you're when you're doing underwater right. photography so how do you overcome that so with the ultra macro setup yeah i can't really focus stack underwater uh with it so what i'm doing is i'm expanding the depth of fields with aperture so i'm shooting at f11 which with an ultra macro setup is a really tiny aperture so you know in terms of kind of geeking out with photo stuff, you end up with some diffraction at that point, which softens your image. And it's worth it to me to get that expanded depth of field. And what I've been doing lately is using some post-production, both in Lightroom and using uh, Topaz tools like Topaz Sharpen AI to get back some of that critical sharpness. So there's definitely a post-production part to this to compensate for some of those limitations. All this, the technical equipment, I mean, it's so specialized, yet it's, you know, there's a, a unique challenge to it. But because you're photographing underwater, you're photographing a low light situation, it just completely changes how you have to look at, at approaching it. And then, like you said, you're working in water, you're working in cold temperatures, so you have to kind of adapt to to having the right gear to keep you warm and safe in that that environment, too. How do your students feel about doing these? You mentioned you're a teacher. I mean, do they, I mean, obviously, you know, certain students are always going to sign up and say, oh, this is really cool. But there must be other students that kind of, you know, do they take take your class and say, you know, get, a, get involved in this and not sure what they're getting involved in? So I teach a course in conservation photography for a semester. We, we do this every other year in the fall. So I always do an underwater segment and I try to keep it really fun for the students. So we, we usually do it early in the semester in the fall when it's kind of nice and warm in Virginia. We hit a beautiful trout stream and we just spend a few hours going in the shallows and you know trying to have students get their eyes on and try out some stuff. So we have some compact underwater cameras and a few of the larger rigs in underwater housings. Then I would say, you know, there's always just, there'll be a couple students from that experience who kind of get the buck and want to try it out later on. And some of the students have gone on and then they go out and they'll find vernal pools and tell me about them. And some of the best vernal pools that I've found that you know occur in this book are from students exploring and then coming back and saying, hey, Steve, you got to go to this pool. And that's, you know, that's, of course, incredibly exciting to me when you know, people kind of catch that experience. 
Well, and I saw that you were teaching a conservation photography class, and it made me think back to you and I have a somewhat similar, you know, path that we took to get to where we are today. And, and that I've got a communications degree, and I did a lot of writing, and I kind of came up that always with an interest in science. But I, you know, I dabbled in biology classes here and there, but it was always about the creative side and then finding the subjects that I wanted to go after. But you know. Part of it is, you know, I think back to my photography classes and we went out to gardens, you know, we, we didn't have conservation photography just wasn't a thing then, you know, mm -hmm. and I think of how lucky these students are these days to have something like that to really push them into seeing what they can do with their photography. Um, you know, I'd be curious to hear what, you know, what kind of things have your students gone on if, if they have with what they've learned in your, your conservation photography class. Yeah. I mean, an example that, that comes to mind was a student who was doing work in photography and also some science work at a our university. So there's some crossover there. Uh, but he was doing wood turtle surveys and then using his photography skills to do presentations about these wood turtles underwater. And then he got an internship with the Smithsonian and has continued to do that work, combining his research and photography and some radio telemetry. So those are the kind of things that I think are really exciting. In some ways it makes me wanna go back to school. I don't wanna necessarily start all over again, but yeah, there's so many opportunities for students out there these days. I always have the same thought. There's, there's no possible way I'd wanna go back full time, but then something like that comes along and you think, you know, that's what, it's what we do, but a conservation photography class could go tremendous number of directions you know from vernal pools clear up through the megafauna sorry mark mm -hmm. the charismatic megafauna <laughs> <laughs> i think mark asked me at the beginning of this um about my path and uh was maybe a little surprised that i hadn't come in through more of a biology path and that you know that's absolutely the case uh i'm just really curious about it all and that's one of I think one of the joys of doing this work is I've gotten to spend a lot of time with scientists and picking their brains. I read a lot of natural history. So I've learned a lot along the way, but I don't have a science background myself. One of the um, contributors to this book, a really important part, is a fellow named Mike Hazlett, who's the vernal pools expert for the state of Virginia. So I've been out in the field with him tons of conversations and some of his essays are in the book. I've learned so much from folks who do this for a living, who are out in the field, they know the science. I think that's one of the, the real joys of being a conservation photographer. You never know when that spark's going to start for you, right? It doesn't matter when, and obviously your interest is intense about this subject, so it's great that you found a, a, an avenue to explore it and, and collaborate with these people. So as far as the book, can you, I mean, outline it and I'm, I'm, how we get it and what it's what, what just basically summarize what the book is for the listeners and and what it shares with them aside from the spectacular photography, of course. Sure. As far as how to get it, uh, Don, correct me if this is wrong, but I think it's nampa.org/handbooks. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. All right. 
Yeah. And it's a free download. So it's free to anybody. You do not have to be a NAMPA member to get it. So I highly recommend people go check it out and, and sign up to, to get that handbook. Yeah. It's been kind of exciting to, to see, you know, as a free resource, who's been sharing it. I just saw one today on Facebook. There's a group that has about 40,000 people in it uh, based in the UK that teaches kids about nature in their own backyard. And they were sharing this as a resource uh, in the last few days. So that's exactly what I want to have happen. And great to see that. That's important. I mean, curiosity is how discovery happens. And if you teach a kid and to be curious and to feed that curiosity, it's amazing what some of these kids can grow up and do. You know, mm-hmm. look, never stopped my kids from doing anything. They'd bring snakes home. You know, I did draw the line with venomous snakes. We <laughs> did not bring those home, but my son would have if I'd let him. But he removed snakes from people's yards. He, <laughs> so just a quick story. We had a about a five-foot bull snake in our front yard, and the neighbors were panicked and wanted the thing gone. And my daughter and my son, my son was about six at the time, so my daughter would have been eight. And they... uh my son had already kind of taken up photography a little bit or, or was curious about it. And my daughter yells, wait, my dad's going to want pictures of this and runs in. My son gets the camera, comes back out and I've got a card full of bull snake pictures. <laughs> but just that, that curiosity that, that kids have, you can learn so much at a young age. So I'm glad to hear that they're starting them, you know, starting them young. And then, you know, they've got a lot more life to, to look at some of these things. And, and vernal pools are something that just doesn't get on people's radar, right? Mm-hmm. They're gone part of the year. It's in our forest here in southern Ontario. We have them. And, and it's some years they're more robust in the spring than others, right? Depending upon pre- precipitation and, and as far as retaining the water levels longer. But to actually think of what's going on in there just and insects or or the amphibians like you're suggesting there's a whole world going on and people just don't see it so i think that opening the, this chapter for people to stop and, and look at these subtleties is fantastic and doing it through yeah. photography yeah yeah and that really is a nice segue to the kind of the purpose of this book because it, it really is hidden biodiversity in a lot of ways. If you happen to get lucky, you, you might see some of these creatures, but otherwise you kind of need to know what you're looking for uh, because they are very seasonal, particularly a lot of the salamanders. Um, a lot of the, the breeding action happens at night when it can be cold. And when you go during the day, you know, you look at the surface of a vernal pool, it's reflecting back the sunlight, it can be really difficult to see what's happening below the surface. And that's, you know, things like underwater photography can really help so that people can at least vicariously experience some of the things that are happening at night that are very small. And then, of course, some things they can observe directly if they just know what to look for and when. So, yeah, and part of it is, it sounds cliche to say a raise awareness, but I think with something as, as hidden as this, the awareness part is actually a pretty important part. So the book is basically structured where start off talking about 
project. Why, why document vernal pools? And then mycasalate talks a bit about vernal pool environments and how they're formed. And then there's kind of a longest section that gets into some species accounts, largely based on personal observations and supplemented with some of the things I've gleaned from talking to experts and looking at uh, various natural history books over the years. So there's a section on obligate amphibians. These are the, these are the amphibians that really depend on vernal pools for part of their life cycle. So this would include some of the things like spotted salamanders that you mentioned, really emblematic of the vernal pool world. But then others like Jefferson salamanders, tiger salamanders, uh, marbled salamanders, facultative amphibians. These are amphibians that use vernal pools, but might also use other types of uh, water systems, ponds and rivers for their life cycle. So you're likely to find them there, but they're not limited there. And that includes a lot of common species like spring peepers. Uh, on the salamander side could include four-toed salamanders, green frogs, bullfrogs, etc. And then of course there's invertebrates. And yes, probably the invertebrate that's most associated with vernal pools is fairy shrimp. They're just really cool creatures, a type of crustacean, kind of very otherworldly looking. They swim upside down. They, the females carry these large egg sacs that are translucent and you can see these brightly colored eggs inside of them. They're just really fascinating creatures to watch. There's insects that complete part of their, their life cycle underwater in vernal pools. Uh, tiny, tiny creatures that we mentioned the, early in this episode, like copepods, daphnia, uh, all of these things appear in the book. And then finally, towards the end, I close out with a section on vernal pool photography, getting into some of the technical details that we discussed today, uh, some of the techniques. And finally, it closes out with vernal pool conservation and some resources. Yeah, and that's kind of, that's one of the things that I, so you took a semester off to, to produce all of this content, to kind of pull everything together. But, and then I'm curious to know, what is it that you hope to accomplish with, you know, obviously to raise awareness about vernal pools is, is one aspect, but did you have, what kind of specific goals do you have for it? Yeah. So, yeah, certainly raising awareness, this kind of educational aspect is, is one of them. I think I also have an aesthetic goal in this. I mean, I'm not sure that people always associate things like salamanders or frogs with um, aesthetic beauty. Uh, maybe, you know, in this group, we probably do. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are actually scared of amphibians. I've certainly seen that in my class before. So... I think as an artist, somebody who's trained in studio art, studied art history, I'm really interested in bringing a certain kind of aesthetic sensibility uh, and form and order to my photography of this world too. Uh, I want people to appreciate it. Uh, it's an incredibly intricate world. And some of the you know, particular creatures, you know, tiny wood frog tadpoles, if you see them from above the surface, they kind of just look like little tiny blobs. But, you know, you get an underwater strobe on them with a macro lens, and then suddenly they just burst to life in color with this amazing, intricate, golden filigree that 
is incredibly exciting to me to just see how ordered and beautiful this little underwater world is. Did you do any microscopic photography? Any collection of some of those smaller species? So, I mean, the, the closest I got to that was using this Laua ultra macro lens, uh, which gets pretty close, but yeah, not, not true microscope, microscope level. Yeah. But one of, one of my favorite species from these type of ponds is little tardigrades of water bears. Mm-hmm. And you can, you know, you find them on the surface of even trees, but they live forever. Um, oh, well, man. not forever, Stop. but they... I got to get in. I got to get Mark's in on this. Mark's chopping at the bank. Hang on. <laughs> You're talking about my white whale here. I've been trying to photograph tardigrades for years. And I've, I've I found, down. when we did our Someday. diatom class, I found the only one that anybody in the class found. And they're just, I mean, you're looking for less, much less than a needle in a haystack. But they are the neatest little animals that, um, uh, they're hard to explain. You know, eight legs, their mouths, they look like little motors, rotor kind of motors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are incredibly unique. And they live, they don't live forever, but they can live through just about anything. You know, some serious drought and, and then just spring back to life when, when the waters come. When I when one of my invertebrate zoology courses in university uh, revealed what these were to me, and I honestly haven't found one, but the fact that we have a lot of mature 200-year-old oak trees, 300 on our property, and on the north face just covered in moss, and I often walk by and just imagine that they're there. And if a tardigrad, Google it, people, and then the specifications, they are so cool, and these tiny invertebrates but they are so incredibly hardy they will be here long after people are gone it's another one of those things where you think about it how does a tiny little fragile salamander live for three decades when our dogs can't well this little tiny invertebrate I'm, I'm just phenomenal and i'm not not it's not necessarily a direct correlation with an individual's lifespan but this the species themselves can with, withstand so much and they're incredible just where they, and they walk like little tiny white bears and that's i guess part of the namesake derivative from them is just how they move back and forth and yeah sorry i am i am geeking out loving i'm loving it on all this all this <laughs> biology tonight with these species but um something else i i want to just throw in there for 30 seconds as far as the thrill of nighttime exploration in these water systems something that was revealed to me a few years ago when i started doing more interior camping in algonquin park no matter what time of year at night you know those campsites are always on lake shores various size but if you go down to the lake shore at night with your headlamp and i'm i'm assuming having I haven't done it with the vernal pools. It would be a similar experience. If you sit there for 15 minutes, it's incredible what you see from crayfish, all different species of fish. Some are curious about the light. Most of them are ambivalent to it. They just go about their business like you're not shining a light in the water. And you can see, as Stephen pointed out, there's no reflection off the water at night. So you can see down as the slope goes out two, three, four feet. And one of my colleagues that frequently accompanies me on these trips 
Justin, he'll build a little fire on the rocks at the edge of the water, and that'll attract some of the insects, and they'll land on the water. And before you know it, you have lake trout coming up two feet from shore and just grabbing these bugs on the water. It's just amazing to see that life that, you know, is a heck of a lot of fun sitting around the campfire with your friends. But you need to take, you know, a few minutes and, and explore that with a headlamp. And I'm, I assume that the vernal pool experience at night would be similarly re rewarding as far as what you see under illumination that you would never know is there. And is it similar in that they they don't seem to shy away, they don't duck for cover under the light at night, then they're still quite uh, active? Uh, yeah, it really depends on the species. Um, I found there are certain types of invertebrates, like the tiny copepods, that are actually very attracted to my underwater video light. So much so that I'll often have to stop after a few minutes because the only thing I can see is this giant orange cloud of copepods. <laughs> and it, kind of wrecks the visibility. So I'll kind of put it away for a while and then start over again. Um, you know, other creatures uh, with salamanders, you know, usually what I'll try to do is, you know, kind of kind of hit them with the edge of my light. Cause you know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna blind these things that are out there in the middle of the dark. So I'm, you know, going with an underwater video light, kind of moving it around the edges. Uh, and then of course I've got underwater strobes too that I'm using for the macro setup. So lighting's actually is a huge part of kind of revealing this world. And I should mention a you know, kind of a funny thing. Uh, some people ask me about my lighting setups. This is uh, this is a big part of my lighting setups. If you're uh, from a certain age, you'll know this is a hammerhead from the original Star Wars. Uh, I will often spend an hour practicing my macro lighting setups with my strobes on Star Wars figures because they're about the right size as a salamander. And once I've sort of got it down in my office, then I go out in the field because there are times when I might only have five seconds to make the image before something scoots away. So I want to make sure I've got the angles right. So. Star Wars has come to the rescue there. It's a great tip. Never would have guessed <laughs> that one. What and this this from a photography point of view and somebody who has no experience with this nighttime underwater. What do you do with ISO in those situations? What are your limitations? What do you how do you set that or is that a a variable that you play around with or yeah. limits you so, at, with the strobe? So for most of my night work. I'm, I'm relying completely on the strobes for my light source. So in that case, I'm usually shooting at 100 or 200 ISO, uh, nice. which gives me really high quality. And you know, then I'm just experimenting with strobe placement to, to get the light to look the way I want. Now, when it's daytime, that's a, that's a different story. Sometimes I'm combining the strobes with natural light, video lights, or sometimes I'm just doing natural light. Uh, that can be really nice. Some of my favorite images are natural light invernal pools, but it's difficult because your subject has to be really still for that to work. And usually I, I have to have a little bit of, of sunlight streaming into the right spot of the pool for it to all come together. Uh, I have done some work just with video lights. And one of the advantages of working that way 
is sometimes if I can stabilize the camera and use a little bit of a longer shutter speed, a slower shutter speed, that will eliminate some of the little floaties that come by because they just sort of float away and they're no longer really part of that capture anymore just because of the slow shutter speed. So there are some techniques, especially in things like streams, that I've tried over time with slow shutter speeds and natural light or video light that have been helpful. So with the strobes, you can manage this handheld underwater. You don't have to anchor the camera. And, and as you mentioned, with the incredibly shallow depth of field, you have to play it back and forth a little bit as you take images to, to nail a sharp, a sharp photograph. But so do you do it handheld or do you have a little spike that you kind of anchor or what's the, what's your go-to strategy that if people want to try this on their own that you'd recommend? Yeah, it's mostly handheld, uh, okay. and the strobes are, are giving me a nice crisp image because that's the only illumination I'm getting at night. Uh, if I am doing some stuff with natural light or slower shutter speeds, then sometimes I'm able to anchor my camera on a rock by the shore and do it that way. Uh, it's been very rare that I've tried using a tripod in those situations, and part of the reason is by the time I'm in a situation where I would need the length of the tripod, I'm probably also in a situation where I'm going to kick up some muck by putting that tripod in and then sure. ruin the shot. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I was envisioning one of the, like a GoPro spike just to go in a couple of inches slowly, just, but mm -hmm. again, there'd still be play, right? I guess you'd need that for focus, but maybe it wouldn't be enough of an anchor to be advantageous. I'm just thinking yeah. outside the outside the pond here. <laughs> Sediment is really the enemy of this work. Sure, sure. Uh, it's very easy to kick up, and then your strobes will capture it as backscatter. So you get these sort of you know little blobs of murk everywhere. So as much as possible, I'm trying to to just not stir things up. And if I am in a situation where in a larger pond, maybe I need to enter it. I'm moving really slowly because I want to do, you know, as little damage as possible moving in those those environments. Kind of watching below the surface, sweeping with a light to make sure there's nobody in my way. Uh, but then if I see something that I know I want to photograph a few feet out, I'll pause and I'll kind of get all my settings right. I'll think about the shot. And then I might take that one step forward, get my camera underwater, make two or three images, and then suddenly the Merc comes in <laughs> and oh, wow. that's the end. Okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of planning if I'm doing a shot like that. So you prefer to work from the pond's edge whenever possible for those reasons, I assume. It, I mean, there's a couple of advantages. I mean, one, it's just, it means I'm, I'm not actually interfering with the pond in any way, which I prefer, and it means I'm getting clearer images also. But I, I don't want to say that I'm doing that all the time. There, there are deeper ponds where the only way to, to do the work is to be in there. I'm just really careful. And some of this is in the book. You have the photography portion. That's great. I'm going to be downloading that at the end of the conversation. <laughs> I should mention um, some of the conservation aspects, too. Uh, I mean, one, one thing that's going on in the amphibian world is the, the rise of a lot of diseases. 
you know, some of those are, are related to um, you know, various types of fungi. And there is one that's not really been an issue yet in North America, but has been in Europe, uh, a type of salamander disease. So biologists are really paying attention to this and trying to prevent its spread. You may have heard a, a couple of years ago, there was, there was a ban on most salamander trading for, for pets. Uh, it was very much for that purpose. But also when I go between different watersheds, I'm trying to be really careful about not spreading disease. So I'll take my waders and I'll put them in a light bleach solution, wash off any mud so that you know, I'm not contributing to, to any spread in that way. These are pretty fragile environments. Uh, and there's lots of things that have affected them. Uh, development, of course, is, is a huge one. Don, you asked about the purpose of the book before. Uh, and, you know, part of that awareness raising is a lot of people just don't know about wetland environments at all. Or you know, when they see something that kind of looks like a big puddle, that's what they think of it. So I want people to know there's a lot more that's there. And the type of work I do as a conservation photographer, you know, sometimes very specifically, I'm feeding some of that information back to agencies that, that can make a difference. Uh, when I see egg masses related to a rare species like a tiger salamander in Virginia, that's something I can, I can transmit back to the state and put it in their database. And I've done some very specific work with advocacy related to trying to keep certain types of industrial development out of the buffer areas around vernal pools. Yeah, development's definitely a challenge for, for pretty much everything anymore. Mm -hmm. for, for people who are wandering the woods this spring and come across pools that they think could be vernal pools, well, as far as uh, completing a salamander life cycle for those species that, that do require it, What's the minimum duration that a puddle in the forest would have to hold water for that to be successful? So if they see it and they know that it's going to have water in it for six weeks, two months, is that sufficient? Or does it have to be longer than that for it to be a successful uh, salamander breeding vernal pool? Yeah, I mean, it does depend a bit on the species. There are some, you know, really fast developing species like uh, American toads, uh, they can complete their life cycle in, in weeks. Um, but some salamanders, yeah, would, would need months to go through that process. They can adjust a little bit. So if a pool's starting to dry up, sometimes the, sometimes the larva can actually accelerate the life cycle a little bit so they can get out of there. Just like the fairy shrimp, these are all aliens, so right? That's, that's if they, if <laughs> that's they can right. do that, if they can accelerate their <laughs> development. Yeah, and you know, there's there's really interesting kind of interplay between a lot of these different species. Uh, if you look at the book, and maybe that's going to happen in the podcast too, with some images. A lot of the images show spotted salamander uh, eggs and all the different things that are feeding on them. So that can be caddisfly larvae, it can be eastern newts, it can be wood frog tadpoles. There's a whole bunch of things that love to eat salamander eggs. Hydra. Hydra? Yeah. Really? Yeah, okay. Yeah, little tiny green hydra, kind of look like you know tiny anemones. 
and photograph those on the, uh, the edges of spotted salamander eggs. Yeah, interesting. Such a cool project. Such a cool. Yeah. I mean, it's just so different. It's so different from what you're seeing out there these days. And it is pretty eye-opening, you know, to, you know, as I, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, just writing some notes down, it's like, you know, don't jump in the puddles. It's, you know, just getting people to think about what's, you know, there are things that live in these things, even though, you know, like you said, it's a temporary thing, but it doesn't mean it's, it doesn't have its role. Your students have to love it. I mean, if they don't know what they're getting into when they sign up for your course and think it's photography, I mean, there's so many things. Let's go do sunsets. Let's go do waterfalls. No, no, no. Let's go out at night and, and do underwater vernal pools. It's like, what? I mean, that, that component, if you offered that routinely, would be so cool and, and spark such an interest and curiosity. And, and, and there's so much knowledge to be gleaned from the experience, not just photographically, but biologically. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what you're doing. And it's great. The content, too, is just so different as far as being a, a photographer with your skill set and not just, I mean, there's, I don't know what to say here. I don't want to say moose are so much fun, but this is so different than what the average person who picks up a camera would go after and, and try to do and challenge themselves with. There's so many levels to this game, this 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 photography passion that you've, you've embarked on to get it to do it right there's so many things you have to learn and perfect which makes it very interesting one me. of the things i i wrote about in the book is i i go and do this kind of season after season i i kind of think of it like a spiral like you're you're going around and around and kind of seeing this same life cycle repeat but every time you do it you're kind of learning more about the process and um, you're seeing things that you didn't see before. So you get this, this greater understanding of what's actually happening. And that's super exciting to me. And I think it's something that we have all experienced in our different subjects that we photograph over and over again. You mentioned different subjects. So we, you obviously have a really in-depth interest and knowledge base about vernal pools. Are there other subjects you enjoy photographing? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, just go to his Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, we've talked <laughs> about I'm, the spiders. I'm there right now. I'm, I, and yeah, <laughs> the, the jumping spiders are so yeah. cool. So uh, I mean, one of my other big passion projects is been documenting biodiversity at the Shenandoah River, which is literally across the street from me. I've been doing that ever since I moved here in 2005. So, you know, just discovering again, kind of year after year, what's there, what comes back in a particular month. Uh, you know, that's been mink and bald eagles, uh, many different species of turtles, uh, family of beavers that I followed for a summer. So, you know, sometimes it's the same cast will come back and then there'll be something new. That just shows up one day, and I think, where have you been? <laughs> I experienced that here in Louisiana because it's just the winter time that I come down here. So it's and it's mostly birds that I look for when I'm here. But it's yeah, you know, you get the same, you know, the usual usual suspects are you know are there every year. But like this year, for some reason, there's been a ton of wax wings that have been really interesting to kind of follow around. So it is interesting that that when you can on a pattern and a you know regular routine, you know. 
document and, and observe what what you see, what you don't see. Well, why aren't they here? Why did this one show up this year, but they weren't here last year? And it does. It starts raising a lot of questions. One of the things I think I'll be doing even more moving forward, um, this sort of COVID project of really being tuned into my backyard. There's so much I've learned in that that now I'm kind of all primed for this coming season of spring, summer to you know, so I've been going out and cataloging in my yard where there are giant silk moth uh, cocoons and kind of marking those. And now I can follow them into the summer and see what it looks like when they hatch. And there's so many things like that. My wife actually does uh, marketing and communication for a native garden company. So they, they do landscaping with native plants. So this has become kind of a family project to think about <laughs> the types of plants that are in our yard, the trees, and you know, kind of all the species that, that are associated with those plants. I see. It looks like Ron and Mark are like yeah, diving I'm into your sure. Instagram page. <laughs> well, I, I was there earlier today, but it's it's worth the repeat visit again and again. There's there's so much here, and your your photography is absolutely top notch. Uh, the detail, the color, the use of light, the sharpness. Uh, Stephen David Johnson photo. The link will be in our show notes. But I s strongly encourage you to go and see what this, all the stuff we've been talking about. It's just incredible incredible imagery that is uh absolutely it's top unique. notch yeah it's, it's unique but it's so well done i mean really it, it, it's exceptional i was scrolling through it and i thought holy smokes what is that I thought it was some species that i'd never seen before and I, it was a salamander foot oh, yeah, yeah, there it is. <laughs> february 5th 2020 yeah uh <laughs> Of a Jefferson salamander foot underwater, uh, again, perfect uh, proof of extraterrestrial life here on planet Earth. <laughs> Phenomenal. No, they're not, of course, but it's uh, it, it, you can't help. I, I know I'm. You can't help but just be amazed at, at life on this planet and the diversity of it. All these intricate micro details are phenomenal, and yeah, and you even have deer in here, running across the, uh, the Shenandoah River, a doe and two fawns backlit with water flying and a green heron so much but yeah your photography is wonderful but really highlights this the, the the vernal pool stuff everybody's it's worth checking out just visually so stunning and that's what i was going to say about these pools in wyoming i mean we're basically a high desert and so when you find these vernal pools they some of them only last a, a couple months before the summer heat you know, evaporates or, or the ground absorbs. And a good identifier is the herons because the herons get into these pools, especially with, when the adult amphibians are there um, and just feast. Some of the bigger pools, we've got one that's kind of in this little, oh, I don't know, you call it an estuary almost of a, a reservoir. And it's it's large. It's probably three, four acres. And it, it, at some points during the year, there'll be thirty to forty uh, great blue herons on on the water there. And you know that's you know that's when all that activity's taking place, and raccoons, and 
you know, you're dealing with an environment where salamanders or toads are the megafauna. Mm-hmm. But then it brings in, you know, then it brings in those predators, which, you know, a lot of times they're avian. You know, it's that life cycle for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, and I think we've all learned it with because of coronavirus and the way that the, our world's changed in the last year. But, you know, I know I've told people that you don't have to have, you know, a ton of money to go on these expensive trips, you know, and don't get me wrong, going to Africa and Antarctica and, you know, are, the, are phenomenal places to visit, but there's so much diversity right in your backyard, the, you know, that within 15, 16, 60 minutes of your home. And like you said, Stephen, that if you're on a regular basis going out to a river or a pond or a natural area near your home, you really get to learn it. You get to learn the behaviors, you get to learn, you know, the best locations and the best light and the best you know what happens over the course of a year it's just giving it that time yeah and people keep finding new things i mean i'm thinking of uh, samantha stevens work uh you know the the stuff that she's been doing with i think with spotted salamanders and carnivorous plants and showing that carnivorous plants that's in algonquin park yeah I mean, yeah, right. I'm putting the dots together. The the backlit images she has Mm -hmm. of these salamanders trapped in uh, pitcher plants, right? Carnivorous pitcher plants that hold. And yeah, that's yeah. I I recognize that name from Instagram. So she researches in Algonquin Park on salamanders, or at least that's what I saw. Mm -hmm. Very cool. There's a lot of story to be told here. Honestly, you know, I want to say this off air, but um, I'll just go ahead. There's so many publications that I'm familiar with that I would expect would love to have this kind of visual quality to relay this story to their audience, whether it's children's pub- publications, natural history ones, obviously, or, you know, the whole gamut. It, the, your your images are, are very strong, and, and I, I hope you're knocking on those doors to get it out there. There's a, there's a few um, publications that have already taken some of these up. Uh, Ranger Rick has. And, uh, well, I was one of those in my head. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, they would that would be perfect. Uh, Nat Geo Kids, Ranger Rick would be as far as introducing people to what's going on at a young age. But even, even adult publications for anything natural history, uh, again, the, it's the lighting you have and the, and the quality of your images would resonate through any of them, I would expect. So... It's not something I've researched. I haven't gone looking to see how many feature articles have covered this as far as photo essay and, and the biology and amazing intricacies behind it. But everything from outdoor photographer and how to do this to Nat Geo Kids or even National Geographic would be, there's so many that this is just an, and it's not covered very often and not covered this well from what, I mean, again, I haven't dove into the subject but your portfolio is outstanding. And the way you could tell the story clearly, if you look at your Instagram, even from beginning to end, would, would make an easy pitch from my experience. So, and given your passion to get the information out there, go for it. But yeah, I'm glad that some of them are already, yeah, sky's the limit. Keep going. Thank you, Mark. Mark's going to keep you yeah. busy. it's the world it's the world i live in it's a promotion it's but it's 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 exciting when there's something relevant and and so well done that could be shared and 
and and I know that from the editorial standpoint as well, on that side of the equation, it you know I think it would be highly marketable. I'll stop. Stephen, I, I have to say I love that your work. when the way that you're sitting, so the image behind you for those that aren't on video, you've got the image behind you, and I guess it's like are those tadpoles or they're that are in the image, but one of them looks like it's just sitting on your shoulder watching yes. it. <laughs> yeah, these are actually uh, spotted salamander embryos. So they're inside their individual eggs. Yeah, and just as you sit, it looks like it's just kind of sitting there on your shoulder and like kind of partaking in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Star Wars, it just looked like mini Jabba the Hutts. That's right. Little embryos at that point, at that stage. I know we'd switch this geeking out biologically to geeking out over Star Wars as soon as he brought out Hammerhead. <laughs> it's it's a whole other universe under the surface there, right? So, yeah. Very cool work, Stephen. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for sharing it. I mean, putting that that large a portfolio, that large a body of work out there for free for people to just learn what's available to them if they just know where to look that speaks very highly to or of you first of all and and the projects that you've been involved in and and then nampa as an organization to make that available to people even outside of nampa as well yeah nampa's been a great organization to, to partner with on the project um susan day is really helpful and Getting that all set up and the, the conservation committee at Nampa, too, was, was really huge in this. Well, good. It's, I think it's been a, a beneficial partnership on both sides. So we've been happy to, happy to help you along the way. Yeah, I should mention um, my good buddy, uh, Dave Huth, who was part of that committee. Is also, some of his layouts of salamander behaviors appear in this book, and they're phenomenal. I'm really grateful that he made that contribution too. Hmm. It's, it's been illuminating. And, and and there's so much to what you can do with the, your photography in, in this situation. It's literally and figuratively. Yes. And yes. I hope our listeners right. are are picking up on that. You know, I hope it gets them mm-hmm. to kind of think outside the box and, and not feel limited that, you know, if they can't afford an expensive trip to, to not overlook sure. what is in their backyard. Yeah. It's a great summary for sure. Uh, and yeah, Jumping spiders. They're out LED there. lights at night. Take They're know, watching us right you'll now. You'll be amazed yeah. at how many spiders are actually out there when you walk around. <laughs> if you're not into spiders, I mean, my boyfriend doesn't like spiders. And, you know, the first time we noticed, realized what we were looking at, he was like, oh, my God, look at how many are out here. No. And they don't go anywhere during the day. They're out there during the day. You just don't see them as easily. It's something no. we've never covered on Wild and Exposed, and it's something that occasionally I stumble on a very talented photographer like Steven on Instagram who does macro and ultra macro work. And it's, it's worth looking at and discussing strategically how it's done, but just the imagery. I mean, again, I, I, I sound like I'm stalling out here, but I just am so moved by the breadth of life on this planet and, and small life is photographable as well with it, with the gear we can get. Right. So try it on. Absolutely. Birds at the bird feeder at the backyard, but hey, there's all this going on right around us too. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for joining us. Um, I'm so glad to have you on, have you on the on the podcast, and I'm excited to get this project out there. I know it's it's been out for a couple of weeks now, but it'll be available on the on Nampa.org under the. You can either go to Nampa.org slash handbooks, or if you go to Nampa.org, it's under the learning tab at the top or menu item at the top. And, and like I said, it is a, a free download for any. Anybody that's interested in taking a look at it and exploring this potential f- photographic opportunity. And Stephen, where else can people find your work? Uh, so you mentioned the, the Instagram site. Uh, I also put a lot of work on Facebook and Flickr. So if you uh, if you go to stephendavidjohnson.com, I've kind of got all my, my media lined up there. Perfect. Very good. And we'll include that in the show notes as well. Definitely. Well, very good. Well, thank you, everybody, for yet another episode of the Nature Photographer Podcast. We will be back with you next month. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>